during that business, I was getting a lot of people reaching out to me that were like, Hey, like, do you do consulting? Can you help my team? Do you teach my team? I just started creating content. And eventually like I had so much demand that I started creating and publishing that content online that you could just buy it. And by the end of my earnout, I was making more money on like digital sales of that content than I was at my day job. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you might soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. If you want to keep the best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. And even better, Remote helps you rest easy by providing you the most comprehensive intellectual property protection and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered regions, guaranteeing you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything Remote offers from payroll to compliance and to benefits management for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employees onboarded during their first year. You can get 50% off Remote's full suite of global employment solutions for your first employee for three months. Just visit remote.com slash leaders and use the promo code leaders. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. I got another exciting episode today. I'm happy to welcome Scott Britton to the show. Scott, as I told you off air, I always have our guests do their own little little bio and uh, tell us about you know what they're up to yeah hey great to be here ledge excited for the conversation i am a co-founder of a company called troops what we believe is that systems like like slack like microsoft teams enterprise messaging i'm sure if you're a b2b professional you probably use one of them this is really becoming the new interface where people are spending a ton of time it's, on your, it's probably on your second screen or your desktop. It's on your phone. And we think this represents a big opportunity to drive engagement to the things that people need to see and do in your, in your core software systems. And so today we bring forth the most important data, actions, activity from really the CRM ecosystem. So think Salesforce, Microsoft Dynamics, Gainsight, Outreach, Zendesk, all of these different places where people are basically interacting with your company, whether they're a customer or a prospect, 
and we bring right information, right actions, right time to your people where they're already working in Slack or Teams. Right. This is like a chat-based interface for like your core data then. Yeah. It's like nobody likes charging around Salesforce. Nobody likes, you know, if you're an executive, like you might not even have a login to, to Salesforce or, or a gain site where customer health on your top accounts lives. And so we're just bringing all that forward to you using automation in an easy, familiar interface. And because our software also not only allows you to like push data, but actually push information back into those systems for a lot of these highly repeatable tasks, like, you know, a quick update to an opportunity or closing out a ticket or, you know, taking action on a task and a call to action and gain site, like we let you do that in the messaging interface. And so for call it thin work where you don't have to like look at a giant report and figure out what you need to do and analysis, like we just want to let you do that where you already are working. And the outcomes that companies get is better visibility into what's happening across their entire company, better data quality, just greater adoption uh, and of, of these systems. And it's a, it's a huge win for companies. Um, the other thing that we've identified that's a newer product, but emerging space is that the other place that people like working is spreadsheets. You know, every, they're like, how many businesses are just a spreadsheet? And so we've, we've actually built a product called Grid that turns any data set in a Salesforce, a Zendesk, a Jira, a Gainsight, or whatever, into a, a, a dynamic editable spreadsheet, kind of feels like you know you have a Google Sheet that updates any system in real time. And so, the the real whole idea of our company is just simplifying enterprise, clunky enterprise software, letting people work how they want to work intuitively. And if you have people, if you're getting Getting people to use these systems how they're intended, getting better data, you know, it's going to result in better decisions, better outcomes for your business. And so that's the high level. And we sell to B2B companies. So we, you know, I'm, I'm learning from revenue leaders and founders and people doing amazing things in the B2B space every single day. How I'm interested to know, like the evolution of getting to that point where you guys thought like, hey, this is a this is an idea worth tackling that, you know, people are going to want to interface with their system of record via chat. And then, you know, via like a spreadsheet type of interface, you know, like how did, where'd that learning come from? Is it like a, your own experience type of thing? And, and it's just like what you guys like doing or, you know, it's just like a counterintuitive type of thinking at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, you know, to be blunt, the business really originated out of the idea that CRM sucks. Um, every single company I've ever been involved with or been a part of, like getting people to use a system like Salesforce was always a big challenge. And so we just really asked ourselves, like, is there an easier way? Like, is there an easier way to to interact with the database, interact with, you know, fields, forms, button and boxes, and kind of looked at like common behavior patterns of what people are already doing. And, you know, the number one behavior 
specifically on mobile, which is really like the origin thinking is messaging. Like whether it's iMessage, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, Instagram, like it's what people are doing all day. It's what people like doing. And so could you, could you create an experience that you could be messaging, but instead of texting a friend, you were interacting with data, you know, was that interesting? And that was really the kind of the main idea that got us on, on this path. And when we got on that path, the whole category of enterprise messaging really was just beginning. There wasn't any like Slack app store or like any of this stuff, but very quickly, all these companies were like, Hey, we're using this thing called Slack. You know, could you guys just like do what you do inside of this tool that we already use? And that was kind of the, the next pivotal moment for the business for us, which is like, you know, the future of software is not like more windows, more data sets, more applications. It's, it's actually more intelligence, more power, more context in the places that you already do work. And that, that's really, you know, it was like kind of the next big evolution for our, our business and core concept. You know, what I think is fascinating with this to being a former like developer turned evil sales guy, you know, like, you guys have like sort of reintroduced this idea of like, it's a command line, you know, I mean, that's what's what's going on when you start like slash commands out of, of Slack and, you know, buttons and all the things like that pop up in a in a chat interface. I mean, it takes you back to like the old school, like IRC chats when, you know, only super nerds were using, you know, command lines and chat tools. And it's like really bringing that paradigm back where like, oh, look, I can run a query like on the command line. That's so much better than logging into this, you know, other thing. Yeah, 100 percent. I think like I think that that core concept is like a huge inspiration for Slack and, and obviously us as like one of the main applications in their ecosystem. Now, the thing that I would say is a little bit different is like our audience, you know, they're not developers. They're not people that are familiar with that paradigm. And so we've really had to adopt the user experience to fit, you know, people like salespeople, people like customer support and success reps who maybe, you know, maybe that's a new behavior for them. And I would say a lot of our interaction is that feels more, it feels more like you have an assistant because we don't just provide access to these systems, but we also like provide intelligent alerting where it's like, Hey, you said you had a deal that was going to close, but that was three days ago and it hasn't closed. You know, do you need to make an update or, Hey, there's a really important change in account health and gain site and nobody's really doing anything about it. Do you need to go update your success plan? And so a lot of it's like more proactive in nature that then engages people and presents them, you know, a menu of uh, tasks in the form of customizable buttons or call to actions that you can program unique to your business process so that you don't even have to like know like a command line or a slash command query to, to engage with, with information. Right. Is it, 
Is it a lot about data quality and then, you know, sort of the, I guess the interface to the data, like there's a couple of different things going on there. It's like, you should be updating data and making it useful. So the reporting and intelligence tools do their job. Uh, but then the, also the interface with that job now that it does have good data, it sounds like there's kind of like a couple layers there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the reality, one of the things like you think about like data consumption. So yes, there's, there's a component and it's important. It's like every business needs data to effectively make decisions. And so we, we certainly help you get better data. But I think another thing that maybe is less talked about that's really important is just the consumption paradigm of data and how messaging has changed that. You know, you think about a lot of people, the way that they would get data before something like a Slack is they would look at reports. And they would have to remember to log in and look at a report and go line by line. And, you know, that, that kind of, there's a couple of challenges with that. Like one is, A, are people remembering to do it? Um, and then what is the frequency of, and the timeliness of that consumption? Like you might have a key initiative or thing you want to monitor for example, like customer feedback, and you might look at that once a quarter. And is that really, is that really enough versus every single time a new piece of customer feedback comes in on whatever tool you're using, your ability to view that in a feed in bite-sized form, like are you able to derive trends, patterns, insights, opportunities for engagement at a higher velocity? And, you know, unequivocally, I think the answer is yes. And there's really a, there's really a place for both of those, both of those types of consumption models. Um, but I think that's like the other really interesting, cool thing that has emerged in the world of B2B with these, you know, messaging interfaces is that you're just really able to get a pulse on anything much more quickly which allows you to basically take actions more quickly. Another big use case that we see a lot of is coaching, right? Like typical manager, typical paradigm is like, hey, like let's go over something once a week in our one-on-one and let's look at like your calls or your deals. And like, now it's like, hey, I just saw you like change your metrics and your medic sales process. And they're not good. And I just saw you did that. So like, let's huddle right now or let's like hop on a call and just like go over this and fix it. So this doesn't happen again. And you just saved four days of, of bad behavior. Yeah, I think, I think like the, the information consumption model of this bite-sized information is really, really powerful. And it just allows businesses to move faster. How do you guys think about like what I used to call and may still call like alert fatigue, you know, it's like there's the right amount of stuff real time. And then there's a level where real time becomes fire hose and people go, you know, I can't deal with this. And I, I tune out, you know, so like there's this perfect amount of sort of like Goldilocks zone of alerts and real time data that like 
your human brain can process. And then otherwise you're just like, dude, too much. And I remember this like back again to the developer days is like, you know, if everything got logged and we were supposed to watch all the things, it was more just like, ah, never mind. I'm just going to turn off that log because this is a disaster. You know, so like there was the right amount of stuff that that you could throw down the pipe. How do you like regulate that or train people to to do it the right way? Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a great call out. I mean, alert fatigue is real. I think there's kind of two two ideas here. Like you need to be the steward of data in your life. Like, you know what I mean? Like you, I could subscribe to like every single email thing, every single report, every single whatever, and I'm going to get the same thing. And that exists with Slack or Teams. And so I think, you know, you need to take individual sovereignty of like your, what you're consuming and your subscriptions organizationally. I think as administrators or creators of workflow, like you need to take into account the user experience. How many times are you engaging with somebody a day? You know, is that like, are you doing that responsibly or not? I, I don't think it's the, I don't think it's necessarily the application's job to be restrictive in terms of what com- companies or customers wants to do. Like, I think there's a whole new like user experience around this that companies need to understand. And then lastly, I think, you know, there is a responsibility of applications to that, that are like alerting to basically make this more intelligent and a better experience. And so what are examples of that? Like things like being able to mute an application at, a, at mute, mute something at an individual level, um, things like providing analytics on the number of times that you're engaging with somebody a day, the number of things that you're sending to a channel a day. Like we do those things and we give companies tools to, to basically better manage that. And so I think between those things, you know, people are set up, people can set themselves up for success to avoid alert fatigue, but there, there, there is a personal, there is a personal organizational responsibility that needs to occur so that that doesn't happen. Yeah, I think I think that that mix is is great, and I love how you guys have been thinking about that. It kind of reminds me of like on the phone where you know you can it's the, the systems have gotten smarter now where you know the alerts will say, "Hey, we noticed that you swiped this away every time and you do nothing. So would you just prefer to turn it off?" <laughs> you know, and I I think that's the kind of vibe that you know, applications can take on now as we get smarter and smarter about, you know, using uh, user analytics, uh, because you basically have just created like a new interface. It's not, it's not a UI per se. It's like this sort of interaction layer and how, in fact, do people interact with it? There's a ton of learning that can happen there. I don't find a lot of the companies that I interact with, like actually capture and then react to and and fix that interface and make it better, you know, based on that data. So I think that's, that's a really important piece now. And you're totally right. Like it's, it, it comes down to the individual and the, the organization uh, taking the responsibility to use then the the analytics and, and data that's available to them and say like, you know, engagement matters. And if you're overwhelming people with information, they're going to do nothing. So totally key there. I dig that. 
let's talk about your own journey. You know, like just how'd you get into the the co-founder seat? So many different ways people come, I don't know, in and out of industry or, you know, things like that. Like, what's your story? I mean, the, you know, I was, I was working for a SaaS company called Single Platform. I was doing biz dev there. That company was very successful in its own right. You know, we were one of the biggest exits in New York Tech in, I think, 2013. It was a nine-figure outcome, which was at the time, you know, a pretty big deal for a SaaS company out of New York. And um, knew that I always, you know, always just want to do my own thing. I like creating things. I like building things. I like figuring things out and um, had, had, you know, honestly, like at the end of that, during that business, I was getting a lot of um, people reaching out to me that were like, Hey, like, do you do consulting? Can you help my team? Do you teach my team? I just started creating content and, and eventually like I had so much demand that I started creating and publishing that content online that you could just buy it. And by the end of my earnout, I was making more money on like digital sales of that content than I was at my day job. And so I, I left that, I left that job. I moved to Brazil. I was doing the like digital nomad thing and living that lifestyle and, and, and kind of just was like, you know, I really miss, I miss being around a team. I miss, I want to do something. I want to like go for a more high growth business and see, you know, see if I can make it happen in the software world. And so I, I came back to New York. I like reached out to a few friends that I had identified as peers that would be someone I would be interested in starting a business with. One of them is my current partner, uh, Dan Reich, who had you know sold his last business to Buddy Media that eventually became Salesforce Marketing Cloud, and um, we just started jamming on stuff. And I think it's kind of one of those weird processes of starting a business where you like you're gradually just trying to find find something that resonates. At least this is what we were doing, trying to find something that resonates with the market and then also resonates with investors as an investable business and just going back and forth between both sides. And finally, you know, we had we had basically got there with this concept of, you know, interacting with applications in messaging where we had people that. You know, we're using like a very hacked together service that we had created. Investors were very excited about this vision for mobile enterprise. And, and that was it. We were off to the races. How many concepts and, you know, uh, tries and ideas and stuff did you go through? And, and how long was that testing process? Yeah, I mean, for, for, for this, what eventually became Troops, like, I remember I had a folder that was like, you know, troops V56, like a PowerPoint and had done is just a bajillion iterations. But there was like a ton of other businesses that I tried in general before that one. And I think, I think my framework now for identifying opportunities 
it's, it's evolved a little bit just based on my own personal interests and what I want for my lifestyle. But if I was like, I want to do a, a B, I want to do a B2B company. I would just understand like, is there a pick a big ass market to support and then try to identify, you know, really like need to have, need to have problems in that market. And eventually like you're, you're right. You will, you will find something, but the market has to be big enough to support it, to support a, to, to support a venture business. And, and like, that was us. Like we were like, we know, we know data, data and CRM is a problem. Like how we get there, I, you know, we're just going to kind of keep talking to people. And eventually, you know, we ended up where we did, but like, I think it's okay not to have a perfectly defined how, when you decide you want to do a business and, you know, do that customer development process of just talking to as many people that will have a conversation with you as you can. Have like literally how long on a calendar of that, like investigative stage was it? Uh, you know, because I think that this gets missed so much and I love digging into that. And I'll often talk to founders like, oh yeah, dude, you know, we were in research mode, like with bad ideas for, I don't know, 18 months of conversations. And I, that always gets missed in the conversation of like, what seems to have been, oh, I wish I had a great idea like that. When it was really like carving a great idea out of a lot of bad ideas. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think for us, it was, it wasn't 18 months to be honest. It was probably five months, but I, it also wasn't like I was at a job and like doing like one or two calls a week. Like this was kind of all I was doing. And so like five months, four or five months of just getting like shut down and banging your head against the wall. Like that's really, that's like really tough. And so, you know, it, it, it was hard. It took a while. I remember what I encourage people to do in that, in those phases so that you don't go nuts is put a date on the calendar. Um, this is what I did where I was, I think it was like, we started in March and April. I was like, Jesus, this sucks. I said, if we don't find something by August, like I'm just going to go get a job. And that gave me an immense amount of peace because I knew that I wasn't going to be in this perpetual state of, of like lack of success and lack of momentum in my professional life. And, and, that, and, and I had a clock to work against. Yeah, that had to be like a lot more motivating. Give yourself like essentially like your short form exit plan. Like I've had the opposite experience of being like, I'm so committed to being on my own that I'm going to beat myself into the ground for like three years and it's exhausting. And, you know, I, I liken it to, you know, if you just were selling something that like just you get no's all the time, you know, like you got to be able to get some some wins after it. So I now looking back in my own journey, I would do the same thing you did and just be like, you know what, I'm going to give this a run. And it's going to be a, a run with a deadline. And that's got to be like, yeah, it's a save your sanity from this just like constant like this is never going to work kind of vibe. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, otherwise I just think it's like, you know, you don't know when the misery, <laughs> the misery is going to end. It's not fun. Yeah. Right on. Now you guys, I think it's, it's, you have three co-founders, right? Are you the three of the leadership team of, of the business? Yeah, there's, um, there's three founders in the business. Um, we do have an exact leadership team outside of that of people that we've brought into the business since, but all three founders, you know, coming up on seven years into the business are still, are still there. And looking at that, like, how do you, how did you early design decision-making framework? You know, when it was like basically the three of you and then try to get some money and then hire some other people. And, you know, it's like, it's, I, I talk to a lot of people that are like solo founders and so they have all the control and then you got like your sort of 50, 50 types and then you have your trios and you know, they're all different, like different ways to manage, like who's in charge of what. So how did you figure that out? Yeah, I think in terms of like areas of responsibility in the early days, you know, there, there's very obvious things like, all right, one of my co-founders is an engineer. Like he's building stuff. Like one of us is good at selling and marketing things. Like you're going to go do that. But I think it's more like, what are the jobs to be done? And just how do we just get them done as fast as possible? Uh, so so that's just kind of like how we decided to do things. And then as it relates to decision-making, I think, you know, generally there, for us, it was like a little bit more consensus oriented with like the final call being the CEO. I think that there's, there's benefits and there's challenges to that. In the early days, I think, Frankly, like there's probably more benefit to being able to make decisions unilaterally just for velocity reasons. But it, you know, like when you're a small company, there isn't like when you're less than 10 people, like there shouldn't be a lot of time spent on deliberation. And you know, obviously each situation is unique, but you should be able to arrive at conclusions without a ton of bureaucracy very quickly. And yeah, I, I've seen and been in the types of arrangements where it's consensus based and you're you're locked up on things that just seem like emotional or, you know, just sort of like looking back, you know, how much time you could sit around a whiteboard and think about things. You kind of go, geez, that was not as important as you know making some revenue and surviving <laughs> yeah yeah cash is oxygen in the early days for sure how did you guys think about it from the standpoint of like early funding versus you know raising and venture obviously comes you know a little bit later or was it right off the bat based on you know your previous experiences or you know i think a lot of people struggle with like how do i get a technology company off the ground you know do i need revenue in order to to justify investment or, you know, and first and second efforts are totally different third efforts. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think our situation is a little bit unique. Like we just, we raised right out of the gates. We had no revenue, you know, a few lines of code written and we raised on vision and, and track record. I think if you can do that and you want to do that, I think there's a lot of advantages to it. I think, 
the dis which specifically are being able to get resources quicker. I think the disadvantage is that eventually you have, and by the way, I, I think the other thing is, is like, at least in B2B, you know, once you, once you raise money, or I'm sorry, once you like start getting customers to pay you, in most cases, like that's going to kind of be the metric you're measured against. And so your ability to sell on vision is going to become a bit harder. Um, and so for us, like we actually, you know, we raised a series A with no revenue. And the reason that we did that is like, you know, A, we were really trying to optimize around user engagement. But secondly, you know, like we knew that the opportunity for us like wasn't to like with an emerging evangelical, like this is the new way of working, like our revenue build was going to be slower. And I think you just kind of have to acknowledge that like you're going to be judged by, by, by money as soon as you start charging. And so you, you should be in a position to ramp it quickly or else you're going to have trouble fundraising, depending upon where you are in the stage of the business and who you are, obviously. And I think the, the, the challenge or downside of that approach is, is eventually there's a debt to pay. Like eventually revenue has to catch up and you have the risk of raising ahead of where you're actually at in terms of as a business. And that's the constant juggling act. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Uh, so I told you at the beginning, I, I always ask the guests, you know, prior to the wrap, uh, put on your futurist hat. You know, what should everybody be thinking about looking forward now from a, a macro perspective, business perspective, maybe even a personal professional development? Yeah, I think this isn't really going to be much new here, probably, but I think like key themes for me that I keep thinking about are like, you know, more and more companies are going to want to try before they buy no software, which means that individual business users are going to become more important in the purchasing decisions of software and what they think about the products. But I also think that like the way that people discover solutions is going to be and, and choose solutions is going to be more and more um, community driven, more and more. It's like, how do you pick a restaurant? Um, how do you decide what to buy on Amazon? It's like, what's the highest rated? Like, what are other people saying about it? And I think for a long time, there was just, that was like more opaque. And now with things like G2 and just all these communities where people are engaging, I just think that's kind of like the future of marketing is like more advocacy based. And so, you know, I think, I think for me, like just a lot of these B2C behaviors, the blending into B2B, I think, I think like B2B influencers, like influencer marketing, like think about all the shit you discover on Instagram because some person you followed talked about it, like that's becoming a thing in B2B. And, and so like if I were starting at, you know, a software company tomorrow, I would be like heavily investing in community influencer programs, advocacy, customer advocacy, and just really making a bunch of like fanatics 
for my company um, and building a product that the that the not necessarily just the admins like, but the actual users really. Well said. Yeah, I agree. Excellent, excellent advice. So uh, love that, Scott. Listeners want to get in touch with you or the company. What's the best way to do that? Yeah, the best way to do that is, um, you know, you can email me. My email is scottatroops.ai. You also can find me on LinkedIn. You know, just search my name. Uh, pretty active on there and always interested to connect with new interesting people doing cool things. And you, uh, I got I got to give props to another host. You said you have a podcast, so um, we should at least tell people about that. We do have a podcast. Check it out. It's called Built by Humans. We have some of the top uh, CEOs and leaders in B2B SaaS uh, on, the, on the show. And we talk about the idea that business is, is more nothing, nothing more than really just a collection of humans. And so how do we empower those people to be successful? How do we build systems and processes uh, to build great products and services to bring to the world? And so I uh, definitely encourage you to check that out. If that sounds interesting and you enjoyed what you heard today. Awesome, man. Hey, thanks for coming out. Really appreciate the insights. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.